From New Orleans, Louisiana, it's Empirical's PowerTech Podcast. This is the place where we talk about bringing technology to the power industry. Our goal is to educate you on the most popular trends, bring you actionable strategies from industry thought leaders, and help you make sure your utility is prepared for the future. I'm your host, Matthew Sachs, president of Empirical, former utility engineer and power industry advocate. In today's Tech Talk, we'll discuss new NERC regulations involving cybersecurity supply chain risk management, known as SIP-13, and provide some guidance and considerations when developing a program to meet the intent of the new standard. Joining me for today's discussion are Chris Humphreys, CEO of the Anfield Group, and Dr. Nathan Wallace, Director of Cybersecurity at Cyberical and its sister company, Grid Intel, providing software solutions for the power industry. Chris Humphreys is an internationally recognized thought leader and evangelist in the industry verticals of cybersecurity, critical infrastructure protection, intelligence operations, and regulatory compliance. With over 18 years of experience, Chris has written national-level policy on cybersecurity and critical infrastructure protection and has been responsible for the enforcement and implementation of cybersecurity regulation for electric utilities within the Texas region and across North America. Chris currently serves as the CEO and founder of the Anfield Group, an Austin, Texas-based cybersecurity and regulatory compliance consulting firm. Under Chris's guidance, the Anfield Group has built a solid reputation since 2009 of designing and delivering cybersecurity programs that are both secure and sustainable. The Anfield Group's message continues to be focused on a holistic approach to security across multiple regulatory frameworks, such as NERC, NIST, SOX, HIPAA, PCI, and FISMA, that produces compliance outputs as natural byproducts through sound policy and controls design and governance. The goal is to integrate appropriate automation technologies to influence a more proactive approach to risk mitigation and compliance versus a reactive posture to the ever-changing regulatory climate. Prior to founding the Anfield Group, Chris served as the Director of Audits and Investigations at the ERCOT for the NERC Cybersecurity Framework for the entire state of Texas. He also was the founding chair of the NERC SIP Compliance Working Group, tasked with authoring the audit process that remains in place today for all of North America. Dr. Nathan Wallace has BS degrees in electrical engineering, physics, a master's in engineering, and a PhD in engineering from Louisiana Tech University with a focus in cyberspace engineering. Nathan began his career at a major southeastern investor-owned utility and joined Empirical as a staff engineer and director of cyber operations for its sister company, Cyberical, where he is responsible for assessing various power system cybersecurity risks. He is also actively involved in numerous professional organizations and leads a number of IEEE committees. Gentlemen, thank you both for joining us today. So yeah, Chris, you know, definitely. It's really great having you here today, being able to talk with you. You, you really bring a lot of uh, kind of experience, that firsthand experience as a NERC auditor to this topic of supply chain. Uh, so really, in, in our kind of discussion here, I wanted to phrase things from this perspective of question one, you know, being on the past. How did we get here? And then question two, talking about where are we at today? And then really with question three, kind of bringing it up, you know, what is this key takeaway on this topic of supply chain that can help an asset owner you know, anticipate the future and provide a solid foundation as the regulatory framework kind of changes, what is that key takeaway that utilities can start doing today? So let's go ahead and dive on in. Uh, so question number one, you know, kind of looking at the past, 
with the seemingly sudden increased concern around supply chain, how did we get where we are now? And what did this whole, or really when did this whole supply chain topic really start with control systems? Yeah, so obviously right now, again, the media and everything we're seeing with the COVID-19 and the risk to supply chain with uh, PPE equipment and all that kind of stuff and, and you know, vaccine uh, shipping and all the stuff that we're worried about was a kind of a, the media brought that to the, to the forefront. The same thing happened back in 2008. Uh, the first time anybody really heard of supply chain as far as Joe Public goes was the uh, Stuxnet vulnerability. And the Stuxnet vulnerability was the uh, Iranian nuclear program compromise where it was all over the news where their centrifuges were programmed to malfunction and spin up and ultimately destroy themselves, delaying and sabotaging the Iranian nuclear program. This was like 2008 timeframe. And there have been instances of this vulnerability in the wild, but the public knowledge of this didn't really come to the forefront until then. So in typical fashion, uh, unfortunately, our regulatory model isn't always dictated by, you know, what experts in the field say could possibly happen. It's dictated by media presence and hype. And, you know, when their local Congress congresspersons or senators or whatever say, what are we doing about this? Because they saw something on CNN and Fox News. That's what gets our regulatory model to jump, which is the unfortunate reality that we're still in. Um, so that's what brought everything to the forefront there. But um, that was 2008. And we're still just now implementing the NERC standard for SIP 13 for supply chain management. How long has it taken to get a standard in place in reaction to that? And one, if that's how long it's going to take for these regulations to get in place, the threat we're trying to deal with has far since evolved. And even the standard we're looking at from NERC is very, very high level. Just come up with a plan on how you're going to work with your vendors to adhere to very basic minimal requirements, right? Yeah. The argument has always been, one, if we have to wait for our regulatory model to dictate what we're doing from a security enterprise risk management perspective, we're going to be behind the eight ball all the time. And this is common sense stuff that people should be looking at already as part of their own internal risk. I mean, I'm hoping that the majority of critical infrastructure owners and operators and industrial control systems folks know that they test everything from a third party before they deploy it, whether it be hardware or software. I'm mm -hmm. hoping that that's the case. And I'm optimistic that from a security and operations standpoint, most people get that. But there are the small to medium-sized folks that sit there and say, you know what? Yeah, that's great. But if there's not a regulation to tell me I don't have to do it and I'm compliant with the current, the current framework, I can plead ignorance or plead plausible deniability or whatever you want to say and say, so what? I was compliant with your framework. Mm -hmm. So that's the, that's the – and it is a bottom-dollar issue. I don't want to make light of that. I want to sympathize with the small to medium-sized entities that are like – Dude, our janitor is our IT guy. Like we can't like, you know, and there's a lot of that. I mean, a lot of our bulk electric system are the small munis and co-ops that I have to sympathize with the budgetary constraints and how to do that. But mm -hmm. there are practical ways to, to show that one, you're probably already doing some of that stuff. And there's ways to mitigate that up front while we're waiting for regulation that, that again, it should be a risk focused perspective, not a compliance focused perspective. Yeah, no, so so true. And I mean, even on this topic of supply chain, you know, dating dating some of these concerns around control systems to the early 2000s and Stuxnet, right? I think even, you know, one of the ways that has been kind of discovered or at least proposed as far as how they got the malware into that facility was via via a external technician. Is that right? Like, you know, so that was part of that supply chain, you know, and that was one, I think maybe what Kim 
Kim in her book uh, said that, you know, that that was one of the proposed avenues or, if you will, attack vectors. They were able to bring that into the facility. So, so yeah, it's, it is crazy, right? I mean, what, we're 20, you know, uh, 2020 now, and that was the early 2000s, and, and we just have a regulatory uh, standard now that says, have a plan, you know? Well, and, and that's the thing I find, too, is we, we create our own message, right? I mean, the Stuxnet thing was, it's, it's not classified anymore. It's obvious that it was us and the Israelis that intercepted the Siemens controllers, the PLCs, and put the malware on there. And then it was propagated in that way. I mean, I do vulnerability assessments all the time where, the social engineering component, I'll drop USB drives in the parking lot and you'd be shocked at how many people just bring it in and plug it into their system. So yeah. there's still that 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 maturity from a, a, a you know, the, the sort of general hygiene cybersecurity stuff from a social engineering standpoint that we're still behind the eight ball on. And, and it's it's not surprising at all how many people just, you know, don't give give caution to the wind and, and, and are willing to take that risk when they when they plug something in. Yeah, yeah, no, so true, so true. So, so looking at, so that's the past. So, yeah, bringing it now to to the present. You know, question two, uh, really bringing it to today. We now have NERCSIP thirteen, and and honestly, more recently, right, this presidential executive order. What are you kind of hinted at it, you know, already? But what are your thoughts on on this presidential order? Um, you know, what are some of the implications that you can think of? And and honestly, frankly, the challenges. But not only from the, the asset owner, but just from this massive now regulatory, uh, if you will, Pandora's box that has been right. opened now, right? Right. right. Well, the, you know, the executive order, again, uh, I'm not I'm going to try to stay out of the political side of the fence. But in just reading the executive order, it's literally two pages. No one from NERC or FERC or, you know, I would be surprised what input DOE had on this. I'm sure DOE found out about it when it says, guess what? DOE is going to have all the authority to enforce this executive order. They're like, oh, wow, I guess we should probably pay attention. Basically, what it's calling out is essentially you need to have a plan for removing anything made in China out of the BPS, which is completely unrealistic. It's completely impossible to phase anything like that out of. There's going to have to be lines drawn and exceptions and contingencies around, you know, U.S. companies that, you know, manufacture in China should be okay. But it's just a completely unrealistic high-level expectation without any granularity on how we're expected to do this. Oh, and by the way, DOE is being granted the, the regulatory authority to enforce this. Mm-hmm. Um, what sense does that make if we've had FERC and NERC this whole time, designated NERC as the ERO, and how does that impact what we're going to be doing on the SIP 13 side? So you're going to have this back and forth from a regulatory standpoint, when at the end of the day, I'm sorry, we should, we, we should easily be able to address this 60% before the regulation even gets here with bolstering our controls around testing and, and, and configuration management testing and deployment and uh, disposal redeployment, you know, uh, all those kinds of things. I mean, uh, provisioning and deprovisioning, like you should have those controls already in place that you have some kind of sandbox or test bed or you're moving stuff out of production to test. You know, those are the things we can bolster to mitigate this for right now. And truthfully, that's what you're going to be using to bolster it going forward. I mean, there's really nothing more we can do beyond that. Um, but again, the, 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 the end goal of saying we want to minimize or eliminate our dependence on China for manufacturing of components, hardware and software components of our industrial control systems and, and bulk power system is completely unrealistic. And it would take decades for us to build, you know, contingencies for that where we weren't dealing with China. It's just it's just unrealistic and unfeasible. 
Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely, I definitely agree. There are some feasibility challenges. I mean, even even from our standpoint, you know, as a as a turnkey engineering firm, I've actually had to tell clients and inform them of this executive order. I mean, for instance, with one one uh, utility that we were doing some engineering for, um, they were looking at purchasing some digital fault recorders and you know indication uh, DFI type of technologies to do fault fault analysis, fault recording. And uh, it was manufactured in China, right? So we had to pull pull that out, as well as you know, you think about that. That's a kind of a low lead time, short lead time okay. item. But you have big, you know, extra high voltage transformers with controls attached to it, and these things are designed per the installation environment, right? So it requires a lot of engineering, a lot of specification before they even manufacture the device. So sometimes these things take two, three year lead times, right? right? Uh, so we, we now, you know, and I'm not saying this is the case for us, but I, just saying in general, you know, there, there could be instances where uh, there's an engineering project, you know, a, a power plant, a substation, switchyard, what have you, that's, you know, three years into the design and they've already started purchasing things to say, hey, you need to redesign it completely, right? So the burden now that that places on the utility financially, um, you know, to, to have to redesign or yank out, like you said, I mean, it's it's going to be interesting to see how this actually is implemented, right? Yeah, and I mean, the last thing I'll say too is like things that might change a little bit. This might have sounded fanatical a couple of years ago, but there have been so many documented cases with, you know, traditional cable routers that all these, uh, you know, ISPs provide us and everything that we might be getting hardware from China and you might be required to look for, you know, rogue RFID technology on the devices that we've been seeing. You know, there might be some different things and tests that we might have to look for when we physically inspect a device or, you know, commission, uh, right? whenever you commission it. Yeah. When you commission it. But but at the end of the day, that's what we kind of hope we're doing anyway. I, I think, you know, we should already be doing that stuff anyway. And then the other thing that I've preached for years since day one is I'm sorry. Every regulatory framework is a derivative of NIST, and it, it, and it, it go. It, we have to get to that point, but it takes the bureaucratic process for these standards to kind of mature to that. We've got to hit that out of the gate. There's no reason to reinvent the wheel, and like with everything, NIST Special Publication 800-161 is supply chain risk management. There's a whole special publication on that that's been around for years. Yes, it's extremely involved. It's extremely you know, tedious to weed through all that for sure. But we need to have these 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 standards developments folks and these people that are putting new regulations together, their focus needs to be to pull out the subset of those publications and apply it to their industry, not start from scratch and go 10 versions of the standard like we're doing with NERC SIP to finally realize, oh, we're bits and pieces will incorporate NIST. No, incorporate NIST out of the gate. It's the industry standard proven best framework for security best practices. And I'm sorry, by doing so, the culture that we see in these regulated industries is you have the compliance culture dictating operations and security, whereas, I'm sorry, operations and security should be executing process and controls that compliance never has to bother them. They don't know the difference. It's producing those byproducts for compliance. It's not this separately driven thing, which in the small to medium sized market, I understand the regulatory risk is a lot bigger for a punitive risk exposure component where, you know, you. In the most extreme cases, I have lawyers writing operational process for engineers that don't have any engineering background because they're so worried about, you know, being non-compliant. So this is another instance where everything's kind of coming to the middle to sort of, again, force this idea of 
you're constantly chasing your tail or we can there's a centralized way we can do this that we're already doing it bolster it with a subset of NIST and I'm sorry the regulators can spin their wheels all they want on different versions but you're going to be compliant with that and then some far beyond anything they can come up with yeah no no that's a great great example and I mean uh kind of kind of bringing it full circle I mean with these systems right uh, they're they're engineered. We can't just re-engineer them, you know, every four years as the political landscape changes, right? So right. They, they really need to be engineered with some solid foundation, um, as well as you know the the engineering and security operation practices uh, as a byproduct feed compliance, right? Not I guess the the uh, the dog wagging the tail, right? Kind of kind of thing. <laughs> well, the slide I, I always bring this example up because in every operator interview I do as part of an audit, it's still to this day I see this. It is becoming, it's improving slowly but surely, but not to where it needs to be. Every operator I interview or every IT engineer or anybody like that, they'll say, I don't have time to do this compliance stuff in my day job, where they make this compliance and component. And what's happening is these very technical skill sets are turning over and going to other jobs because they're burnt out on compliance and they think, this isn't what I signed up for. I'm not a compliance person. So the human capital impacts this sort of philosophy of, you know, every time some regulation gets started up because of something they see in the press and everybody freaks out, has, has, has downstream has all these impacts to your organization where you're turning over human capital. And then the time it takes to, re to fill that slot and then if the processes and controls aren't written down, that knowledge walks out the door. I mean, there's all these risks that factor into this regulatory and compliance dictated culture at an organization that if we just had the right synergies of, you know, realizing what we're already doing, repackaging it to satisfy compliance and leveraging security best practices instead of waiting for the regulators to tell us what to do, it's, it's forcing us to have to do that. And, and I wish it didn't have to take that long, but... It's just the way, you know, got to bring the horse to water, but you can't make it drink type kind of a thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, it's good Good points. I mean, there's definitely a lot of, uh, I guess, implications and, and like you even mentioned, kind of the burnout that that is an indirect risk, right? Like that, that a lot of uh, maybe C, C types aren't really taking into an account when they're just implementing these the regulatory or trying to lessen the regulatory risk. Uh, great, great stuff. Uh, and I think we definitely maybe – can can go down any one of these rabbit holes in a in a future uh, conversation. Yeah. So definitely looking forward to it. Um, just just uh, any kind of closing. Uh, what what was that uh, supply chain NIST standard again? Let's just make sure that, that people have that. It's SP eight hundred, so Special Publication eight hundred series, um, and it's one sixty one supply chain risk management for federal information systems. Now you should be able to find that on the NIST website without any problem. Google you know NIST supply chain you know. But special publication 800 series uh, 161, and that's that's the that's their their big uh, uh, special pub guide on supply chain risk management. Awesome, and then yeah, I mean even the outline, right? A lot of the asset owners, even the the smaller ones, can just kind of take that, look at the outline, and then just plop it down and start applying it to their organization, right? I mean that's kind of the way it's structured. And yeah, and I would expect the the cybersecurity framework, the 800-53 controls for NIST. I would expect the cybersecurity framework to be updated relatively quickly, if not, if it's not already happening right now, to add the control families for supply chain because of everything we're dealing with right now with this pandemic kind of putting that in everyone's face, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, we'll have blockchain and supply chain and some of that other stuff. I'm sure you're going to see the cybersecurity framework on the 853 control side evolve as well in tandem. And I would just 
I would really hope and pray that the folks developing these standards, whether it's DOE or NERC or however it's doing, is plugged into those NIST groups that are evolving at the same time because I'm sorry, that's it's just a mess if we don't if we know that's the end goal. Let's have our, our industry, our sector-specific regulators find out a way to pra- make that practical for everybody. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. And I know I know on the technical standard side, with regards to the IEEE Power and Energy Society, we are heavily plugged in and affiliated with that. And there, there is an effort to kind of cross-pollinate the expertise and to leverage some of the existing techno- uh, standards uh, to create industry-specific technical standards that then – the engineers and operators can just pick up and apply, right? There, there's not of this a whole lot of that interpretation, and it, it, in the case of the IEEE, it does create more industry-specific standards. Um, so, great stuff. Any any kind of closing closing comments there, Chris? I mean, I know we touched on a lot, but <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's. Uh, I think you know, follow-on discussions might warn on subjects down rabbit holes of like you know, uh, you know, evaluating what tools you already have in house that might be able to satisfy some of this stuff, and you know. Things you're duplicating effort on that you can you can free up to get resources you need to address this issue a little bit fully more fully. Um, you know the other thing that again with NIST when we preach NIST I go you know I understand there's a large part the learning curve is very very steep. I understand there's a large portion of our demographic that can't even spell NIST or knows what it stands for. We were very sympathetic to that and we, we worked on the SANS top 20 critical controls which are now the CIS top 20 which is basically the cliff notes for NIST. I would expect that with this task force that DOE is standing up, that I, I have been informed that NERC and FERC have been asked to be on the task force, which is reassuring, but we, we need to work on some kind of cliff-noted version with the same kind of idea around supply chain for our, 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 our bulk power system to make NIST palatable, palatable and where people can, can, can start. Because again, uh, most people can't can maybe get every third word, <laughs> you know, at a technical level, depending on you know, the size of the entity. So yeah, yeah. And the resources at hand. that as well. Yeah, yeah. And the, and the resources at hand, yeah, at the entity. No, great stuff. You know, really, really appreciate it, Chris. Uh, for, for the listeners, we're going to have a uh, kind of like a uh, form that you can go to the website where this is going to be posted. And then you can submit, you know, kind of any questions or anything you would like Chris to, to maybe take a deeper dive into uh, in a future recording. So definitely, Chris, uh, really appreciate it. Very informative. I think, uh, as you mentioned, we can go down these rabbit holes quite a bit. Uh, so really, really good stuff, and uh, we're looking forward to the uh, the next conversation, Chris. Thanks for having me, and uh, happy to answer any questions and 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 keep this going as you got as your constituents need. Empirical is dedicated to delivering thought-provoking and educational content that is relevant to the continued success of our clients in the broader power and utility industry. If you enjoyed today's discussion, please check out our entire library of podcasts, tech talks, webinars and related material on our Knowledge Hub at Empirical.com. Well, that about wraps up this edition of the PowerTech Podcast. If you haven't yet, please log in to wherever you subscribe to the podcast and both rate this show and leave a comment, as that really helps new subscribers in the power industry to find us. Also, for more free insights on bringing technology to the power industry, make sure to visit Empirical.com. We post free white papers, articles, and all of our previous podcasts there. Plus, you can register for a free 3D strategy planning session call with one of our 3D planning specialists. Again, you can do all of that and much more at Empirical.com. Please stay tuned and join us for the next episode of the PowerTech Podcast. And until next time, keep engineering powerful solutions.